Well, hello everyone. My name is Gordon. I'm the assistant minister here. Uh, we're going to be reading from the scriptures now, from the Word of God. Uh, and our Bible reading today is from Genesis 2, and you can find that in page 2 of the church Bibles. Uh, so it's Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 uh, to 23. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havalah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic Resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire country of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you. My name's Prash. I'm the senior minister. A very warm welcome. If you're new or visiting or joining us for the first time, it's, uh, it's great to have you in the building. This morning, we're, um, we're, we're starting a series in, over the course of this month of May on the topic of work, um, and we're going to think a little bit about it from a number of different angles. Work is one of those topics which I, I think people don't really know how to think clearly about. They're often caught between a spectrum. This is an ad that was shown in the Super Bowl. Uh, cast your minds to the screen. Graham, if you could play it for me, please. With sound. Uh, as a rule, if you hate going to work every day, it may be time. If you hate going to work and your coworkers don't respect you, hey, dummy. it may be time. If you hate going to work, your coworkers don't respect hey, you, dummy. and you always wish you were somewhere else, it may be time. If you hate going to work, your coworkers don't respect hey, you, dummy. you wish you were somewhere else, and you cry constantly, 
It may be time. If you hate going to work, no one respects you. You wish you were somewhere else. You cry constantly, and you daydream of punching small animals. Oh, dear. It may be time. If you hate going to work, no one respects you. You wish you were somewhere else. You cry constantly. You daydream of punching small animals, and you sit next to this guy. It may be time. If you make loads of money, it may not be time. Let's go. But if you make loads of money, you hate going to work, no hey, one respects Johnny. you, you wish you were somewhere else, you cry constantly, you daydream of punching small animals, and you sit next to this guy, it's probably time, as a rule. There you go. Well, is it time for you to change a job? That's the question. In the, in the video that you just saw, in the video that you just saw, uh, the challenge that they're, they're unpacking is that for many of us, we do a job with little joy. We maybe started doing that job, but we've lost the joy. I'm sorry, Way, I'm getting lots of feedback here, if you don't mind. It must be from the foldback speakers. Thanks, mate. Um, and, and, and yet there are others of us who just, we throw ourselves completely into our work. We love it. And the question is, which of those two people is right? I think, interestingly, I had a Bible study leader who many years ago, when I, when I used to ask him about his day, uh, his week, when, when I saw him on a Sunday, he'd tell me how terrible it was. And he would say, but it's okay, work is cursed. Work is a curse, was his line. And so for a long time, I always considered my job in the, on the spectrum between blessing and curses towards the curse end. That was what work was. Work was a curse. It was a product of the curse. But I want to say that actually the way the Bible thinks about work is very nuanced. There is not just one line to understand your work. And even what your work is, actually, is much more nuanced than you, you might automatically assume. You're already thinking of something when I say work. You're already thinking of a particular space in your week or in your life previously, but work is much broader than that, I want to show you as well. So where do we start? Well, I want to say the first thing that we learn from the Bible is that there is inherent goodness to work. There is inherent goodness to work. And this is because, first and foremost, i still got heaps of ringing here, Way. It's like the gain is up. Um, there's inherent goodness to work. And the first reason is because God himself works. Sometimes you might think, oh, God created the world in six days and then he rested for the rest of time. But actually, that's not how the Bible talks about it. Here's Jesus in John 5, 17. He says, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. He's actually talking about it in the context of the, the idea of the Sabbath holiday in Old Testament um, teaching. And he says, no, no, God is still working. In fact, Paul will say in Colossians, God is consistently sustaining the world, actually. He's always at work. God works. And Jesus says, I am working. God is a worker, and so work is good. The other thing we learn, though, when we look at God as a worker is that we see the wide variety of work that even God does. God comes as a, he comes as a gardener. He comes as a builder. He comes as a manager. He comes as an artist throughout the story of the Bible. And so there isn't just one type of work that God does. Philip Jensen, who was a, a, um, a former dean of the Sydney Cathedral, wrote this. He said, if God came into the world, what would he be like? Well, for the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. Uh, the ancient Romans might have looked for a just 
and noble statesman. But how does God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. He comes as a carpenter. That's, worth, that's just worth reflecting on. It's worth realising that for most of us, we think about work uh, in, the, in the context of kind of white-collar white tech technocratic work, you know, where you sit in front of a computer and you type out stuff and you shoot off emails and you're in meetings in offices. That's what we think about by work. But amazingly, wonderfully, when Jesus comes into the world, he comes as a blue-collar labourer. He comes as a blue-collar labourer. God's vision of work is much broader, I suspect, than your and my immediate intuition and, 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 and where our minds might go straight away when we think about this topic. If you're a parent, what do you long for your kids? I think what you long your kids might become in their, in their professional lives or just as they grow up is perhaps an insight into what you might think of as valuable work. But the Bible... The Bible portrays God as the great worker and his work of such great variety and of such great spread. It is not just the, 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 the kind of the narrow microcosm that our particular cultural space thinks of as work. Work is good and work is varied. But it's not just good because God works. It's good because it's actually the job that God gave us. So in Genesis 2... Someone said this to me after the morning. So I said, "Ah, oh, when you read Genesis 2, I wasn't really sure how it related to work. We often think of those early chapters of Genesis in terms of God creating the world. But those, that Genesis chapter 2 is all about work, actually. It's all about labour. Because God is working. He's doing a great creative work. But even more, he's commissioning people to work. The, the purpose that we're put on this earth, in part, is to work. And, and in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, so it says, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. Now that's, that, that's you know, in other words, they're talking about the moment in creation when the world is still very formless. Right? There's nothing of beauty and distinction about the world yet. And he says, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. Now that makes sense. We think, okay, no wonder there's, there's no bushes, there's no animals, there's no water. This is the stuff of life, right? But do you see what he then goes on and says, and there was no one to work the ground. See, Adam is put there and then subsequently Eve to bring form and shape to creation, says the Bible. Work has this great purpose of bringing about the fruitfulness of the world we live in. It, Adam is commissioned to bring about the fruitfulness of which see it come out again. This is his purpose in part. God, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. See, we think, oh, no, God doesn't want us to work. No, God does. That's in fact why, it's in part why he created us. It's why Adam's there. And, of course, this story is all before Genesis 3 where, you know, what we call the fall or the great mistake of Adam and Eve. So my Bible study leader says, oh, no, work is just cursed. It's a product of the fall. It's not, actually. It exists before it. It exists when the world is unsullied by man's sin and rebellion. But what we also see when we look at Genesis 2 is that the work God gives his people, 
is a work of great responsibility. There's a great responsibility to what God gives his people here. And it's described in terms of naming creation. It's the passage that uh, Pippi, Pippi brought to us in Spotlight. Work is understood through the idea of naming. Now, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Gen, Z, Gen X, so I watch The Simpsons. If, if you don't know what The Simpsons are, bear with me. Okay, I'm just going to play a clip for you from The Simpsons, which I think uh, brings out the power of naming people very well. Uh, well, I've been thinking, if the baby's a boy, what do you think of the name Larry? Marge, we can't do that. All the kids will call him Larry Fairy. Well, how about Louie? We'll call him Screwy Louie. Bob? Slob. Luke? Puke. Marcus? Mucus. What about Bart? Let's see. Bart, Cart, Dart, Eart. Nope. Can't see any problem with that. Thanks, Homer. The power... <laughs> The power of a name is profound, isn't it? As a, as a parent, one of the great responsibilities and privileges you get if you're a parent is to name a child. Name a child. Uh, I know parents who've waited weeks to name their child. They've been so overwhelmed by the responsibility. They feel it as a burden to give this person a name. Because a name is, is something that gives you a place and a purpose and gives you a sense of value. And you carry this name through your whole life. In the Bible, God actually renames people at times. He renames them because he is giving them a new purpose in, the, in his great story, in what he's doing in the world. He's giving them a value they didn't have before. See, the name that someone carries is often a signifier of their purpose, their place, and their value. And, and what's extraordinary about this story is that, if you just pop it through to the slide after the video, please, Graham, that what's extraordinary, thank you, is that God, God gives Adam and then subsequently Eve this responsibility. So look, Genesis 2.19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. God is like the great parent of creation, right? But then he goes to Adam and he says, Hey, you name, you name my creation. And so Adam, he sees a bird and he goes, Aardvark. And he sees another one, he says, albatross. And God, it's not like God says, give me the list, I'll sign off on it. He gives Adam this great responsibility of bringing to creation its purpose, its place, and its value. See, to, to do the work that God is talking about is to give creation this amazing identity, this amazing place, and its value. This is, this is God saying, this is my right but I'm giving it to you to exercise. This is why work is so valuable. Work is so important. We're built to work. If you've ever gone to a nursing home, one of the reasons why nursing homes are depressing is that so many people in that, in that place don't have any work to do. They, 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 I mean, I talked to one of our congregation members yesterday and he is saying they serve you such small portions of food because you don't do anything. You don't have any energy to burn. He's talking about how boring life was. This is, this is actually the tragedy of that stage of someone's life. 
Because we are built to work six days and rest one. Work is good. This is so contrary, actually, I think. I mean, I used to run a, um, a, an evening congregation in my old role. It was filled with um, young uni students who would work two or three jobs a week. But they, they didn't work that because they had to pay rent. They were living at home. They worked that so that at the end of the year, they could go on a three-week holiday to Vietnam. That's fine. Going on holiday to Vietnam is fine, by the way. Great food. The, the problem is it, it has a mindset which says we work to rest. But actually, we rest to work. Work is good. We work to rest implies there's something bad about work. You, work, you kill yourself for 48 weeks to have four weeks off. It doesn't matter if the 48 weeks are painful, horrible, because you get the four weeks. But that, that, that's the inverse of actually why work was first created in the Bible. God created work as a good thing. He says, I want you to rest so that you might work. Six days to one, not one to six. And so the, the, the starting point for thinking about work, according to the Bible story, is that work is good. Work is good. But I told you, and I really, this is, this is a challenge. Some, some of you right now, I'm speaking your language. <laughs> you're a workaholic and you're saying, oh, finally, someone who's justifying my behaviour. There, there is not one line to describe work. Because work is nuanced and there is a genuine challenge to it. And of course, the, the story of the Bible is unfortunately in some ways not simply Genesis 1 and 2. It is Genesis 3. It is the story of Adam and Eve breaking God's commandment and so destroying their relationship with him, damaging the world and damaging their work, God says. One of the great byproducts of their failure, God says, is to Adam, your work will be hard. Your work will be challenged and difficult. And I think that's the truth too. I remember... Um, when I was, uh, I was a lawyer in my previous role in life before I went into to church ministry. And actually, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was about 14, uh, 14, 13 or 14. And so I spent most of high school, you know, dreaming about being a lawyer and towards the end working towards getting the marks. And I went to university and after seven years of tertiary education, I, I kind of graduated with a law degree and I did the... I found it quite hard to get a job at the start because, if you know, like the first job out of university is often very difficult. Anyway, I landed my first job. This is the culmination of over 10 years of dreaming and working. I land my first job, and in my first, first couple of days at work, the thing I was most excited about was not getting my own case, but getting my own business card. Got this little box, these beautifully minted business cards with my name and my title on it. And what was even better, I got my own office with a little plaque on the door with my name and my title. Isn't that, isn't that slightly perverse? You spend over a decade dreaming about being and doing this work, and yet the thing that gives me the most joy in that first week is getting this business card with my name on it. But that's kind of like what we do with work, you see. See, work is meant to be about giving other things and the world around us a name, purpose, place, value. 
but we end up making it about giving ourselves a name, giving ourselves purpose, place, value. Jesus talks to the disciples at one point in Luke's account, and he sends out 72 of them. He has a large group of them at this point in time. He sends them out. He gives them the ability to do pretty extraordinary things because then they come back and say, Lord, we did miracles. We healed people in your name. It was so amazing. You can imagine they must have been really buzzing at the debrief meeting afterwards. And Jesus says this to them. He says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. However, he then says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's, Jesus says, he says, don't get wrapped up in your work. Rejoice rather that your name, your purpose, your value, your place is in heaven. He says, be, be careful about that. This is, this is pretty extraordinary because it means you can be doing divine work with divine authority by divine power and still get work wrong. You can... St- you can be me and get work wrong, and you do. That's my tip. You can work for your own name. You can work for your own purpose, place, and value. And Jesus is warning them about that. Even though he has sent them out, be careful, he says. Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and a rich man. It's a parable, and it's, it's a, it, there's lots of details of the parable, but the thing that's really interesting is that Lazarus has a name, as in Lazarus. This is unusual in Jesus' parables because he normally tells stories with just, like, just there was a man, you know? He built barns. No, no, no. This guy gets a name. Commentators say it's really interesting that Lazarus gets a name here. When, when normally when Jesus tells parables, he doesn't, doesn't give him a name. Other commentators say, oh, you know, why does he give Lazarus a name, not the rich man? Other commentators say, no, 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 I think the rich man does have a name, actually. He's the rich man. That's his identity. He, his, person, his purpose, his place, his value is summed up by that. Lazarus is understood by the name Lazarus. But this man is understood by the, by the, the fruits of his labour. If God, if Jesus was writing a parable about you, what would he name you? Honestly, just in the quietness of your heart as you reflect on, what would he name you? Mother, lawyer, teacher, unemployed? I guess the answer that you come to that in, your, in the honesty of your own heart is an insight into perhaps how work has got perverted in your life. It's an answer to me about how work has got perverted in my life. If Jesus told a story of your life, how would he name you? But see, the, the power of a name extends beyond just this life and into, the, into death itself. See, even in death, even in death, this is the real challenge, even in death, a name is important to us. 
It is, right? We are concerned, deep down, about what will be on our tombstone. What will that line be? You know, if you're a king or a queen in England, if you're a sovereign, everyone knows your tomb. They don't... When Queen Elizabeth II passes away, which, of course, she will at some point, and she's buried in all the pomp... She will not just be put in a casket and put amongst, you know, a flurry of headstones. She'll be, she'll, be buried, she'll be buried with the sovereigns of England. Because even in death, a name matters. This is true. It's true in the Bible too, actually. Joseph, one of the, one of the kind of, you know, great figures of Israelite history, when he goes into Egypt and then subsequently he's family follows in him. He, uh, Jacob, sorry, when he comes in, he, he says to his family, when we leave Egypt and go back to the promised land, take my bones with you. Because he doesn't want to end up in some kind of nameless tomb in Egypt. He wants to be with his people. His burial places, they want to know where his burial place is. We, our name, our purpose, our place, our value, even that we are concerned about in death, in death. And I think, I mean, I don't know about you, when Pippi finished her spotlights, I thought, oh, gee, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty depressing place to end. But actually, the challenge of work, the real challenge of work in the Bible is that none of us is the kind of worker we should be. None of us is the kind of worker we should be. All of us work in some way, and you've got to be kidding yourself if you don't think this is you. All of us work in some way to make a name for ourselves, even though our primary job is actually to give a name to creation and to others. All of us. But I'll tell you what the good news of the Bible is. There is one person who is the ideal worker. In the true sense of it, there is one person, and of course that is Jesus. Jesus, when he's born, the Bible tells us, he, uh, he's, he's given a name in the biblical accounts. You might remember that the angels come to, to Mary and tell her, you know, you name him Jesus. But, but there's this great naming moment. Some of us might have had our children christened, for example, right? Jesus is baptised in the River Jordan. This is a great naming moment. And it's a great naming moment because God the Father speaks there. And he says about Jesus... This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Talk about being named. Talk about purpose, place, value. Jesus Christ receives the great name, the name above all names. But interestingly about Jesus, the rest of his life is not about that name at all. In fact, the rest of his life, he spends his time casting off all the privileges that would go with that name. For example, he tells, he tells us he has no place to rest his head. Jesus is basically a homeless man most of his life, right? especially once he starts his last three years of ministry. He's a wandering man. He has no home. He casts off the, the privileges of this great name. And of course, when he goes to the cross, he, he dies uh, the most, the most not, just cr- not just painful, but humiliating death. He casts off all the reputation that would come with this name. 
He has no one with him on that last day on the cross. Jesus, Jesus dies ultimately what you would call a nameless death. In fact, in John's Gospel, John talks about after Jesus is after Jesus died and he's taken down from the cross and some of his, his few supporters gather his body and it says, he says this, at that place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was Jewish day of preparation. Since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. In other words, they found this random tomb that was empty and they put his lifeless body there. The name above all names dies a nameless man's death and ends up in a nameless tomb. 